0: So the Bible reading today is uh, Romans 12, verses 1 to 8. Dear friends, God is good, so I beg you to offer your bodies to him as a living sacrifice, pure and pleasing. That's the most sensible way to serve God. Don't be like the people of this world, but let God change the way you think. Then you will know how to do everything that is good and pleasing to him. I realise how kind God has been to me, and so I tell each of you not to think you are better than you really are. Use good sense and measure yourself by the amount of faith that God has given you. A body is made up of many parts, and each of them has its own use. That's how it is with us. There are many of us, but we are each part of the body of Christ, as well as part of one another. God has also given each of us different gifts to use. If we can prophesy, we should do it according to the amount of faith we have. If we can serve others, we should serve. If we can teach, we should teach. If we can encourage others, we should encourage them. If we can give, we should be generous. If we are leaders, we should do our best. If we are good to others, we should do it cheerfully. Thank you. Good evening.
1: Um, I apologize. I'm gonna move around so hopefully you'll see me for most of the time and I won't be hiding behind the laptop. I just didn't print my notes out, and so my reminders are on here. Um so you'll be able to see whether I'm doing it right. Because you can if your eyesight's good enough. Um so um This wonderful passage we've just heard from Romans about bodies working well. Um, Last year, some of you know, January, February, I was suffering from my gallbladder not working at all well, which meant that I was off fat completely. Um, I've never been on such a restricted diet. It was not fun at all. And the effects of eating fat were not fun, they're incredibly painful. has anyone else sort of had a broken foot or something or a broken hand where you've ended up uh, Andy has did you break something andy your hand and um and just was did that make life harder really hard <laughs> really hard it still does it still hurt a little bit hurt. I don't know whether any of the users of you had a broken foot or broken arm or something where your body isn't working. Um, Joanna's saying wrists, does that affect your ability to knead um, hot cross buns? Oh, you didn't need well. oh, that's okay. Hot cross buns are okay for wrists. Um, I have a friend who who, for various reasons, has spleen doesn't work, and so she takes antibiotics the whole time. You know, our bodies, if bits of them don't work properly, then our whole body doesn't work properly. Um and, and for me, that's kind of a, what I'm going to be talking about a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk about women in the church. Um, and The reason I'm talking about this is because apparently Chris told you I was going to talk about it. He, he didn't ask me if I was going to talk about it. He just said, oh, by the way, because you had laryngitis and you couldn't speak on Colossians, you're going to talk on women in the church. So... Now, one of the this is a massive subject. You know, people have written books on just one verse in in the relevant bits of the Bible. I am not going to cover everything. Um, I'm not even trying. So it's a whistle stop tour. It's some thoughts and some aspects. Please, if it leaves you unsatisfied at the end, talk to Chris. I'm sure he'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to tell you more about it. Um, no, we. But talk to me. You know, this is not meant to be the end of it. it yes, it, it, we may leave you going, but she hasn't talked about and what about? So um, um, I'm going to start us at the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Now, in the beginning was Genesis, right at the beginning, because although the passages, I mean, you know, there may be those of you who are sitting there saying, What's the problem with women in the church? And if so, I can sit down. Um, And that would be great. So for some of us, actually, I I remember vividly um, hearing that the Anglican Church had voted to allow women to be ordained. And standing there on the, I was at university at the time, I was standing on the stairs and somebody going, hey, the men they've just voted to allow women to be ordained. And me going, what, they weren't? Because I came from the Methodist Church and we sorted this, well, we, I'm the Anglican now, but we, when I was Methodist, we sorted it out in the 1750s. You know, Wesley, who was founder of the Methodist Church, he was like, he saw women preach. He saw people come to faith. He said, what's good enough for the Holy Spirit is good enough for me. And that was it. Um, the Anglican Church is a little slower and a little bit more deliberate and not so pragmatic as a new, new church movement, which, of course, Methodistism was, was then. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Genesis and see what that says about men and women in the church and particularly in leadership and in Christ. And then we're going to look at what Jesus might say about women. And then we're going to have a little bit of look about Paul, particularly some of the verses that people get hung up on. And then we're going to finish, hopefully. So Genesis 1, verse 27 said, So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Men and female, he created them. Um, When we look at different versions of the Bible, we might have different variations of this. We might have, so God created man in his own image. The version I've got there reflects what the Hebrew means. So when it says man, it means man. When it says humankind, it's using a word in the Hebrew that means neither men or women or means both men and women. Um, Verse 27, we were all created in God's image. Not men were created in God's image and then women were afterwards created in the image of something else men and women male and female we were created in god's image both of us were then in genesis 1 given this mandate day by day to fill to fill the earth and subdue it we are unique because we're made in the image of god we have a key part in the plan of god's work in the world And we have an aspect of God within us because we're made in his image. Not just men, not just women, but together. There's an equality there. It's the same. We're treated the same right at the beginning of the Bible. It doesn't matter. The Bible is consistent across it. There might be different themes and different variations in terms of how things are expressed, but the equality of man is stated right in the first chapter. That also becomes relevant, I mean, it's a side thing, but when, when they came to slavery, what became relevant and what became interesting was whether people of different ethnic minorities were human, because once they were human, they were created equal in God's image. Uh, Just as an aside for those of you who like random facts, in about 500 AD, there was a council somewhere in France where a load of bishops, about 61 of them I think, got together to decide whether women were human. The vote was won by one vote, 31 to 30, that women were human. So that's quite an interesting one. (laughs) But we are created male and female. We've come a long way since then. We're both given that mandate. On to Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18 is the one of the ones that's sometimes used um, to change that order. Genesis 1, men and women created equal. Genesis 2, then we have order put in. Well, we do, but we often don't get a true translation of that. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That word helper is often used to mean a subjugate, a a servant, or somebody who is under the other. Um, I'm not going to try pronunciation, but Ezer is my nearest. It's a Hebrew word, meaning counterpart. Check with Ben afterwards. Um, (laughs) But what's interesting about the word is it's also used elsewhere of God, of God being our helper. It's a word that means equal. If I was Got a big log, a big tree, and I wanted to saw it. I might have one of those saws where I have somebody at the other side to help me. And we would saw together. Now, if you've ever tried sawing that kind of saw, I haven't, but I've seen pictures. You have to work equally because if one of you is pushing harder than the other, it soon gets jammed. It's equal. There's a helper, but it's that helper in an equal context, a counterpart expected to give the same kind of level a distinctive, but complementary, but not complementary in the word that's used sometimes, but that even. Eve is Adam's helper. In Psalm 70 verse 5, that's where we see God is, he's is our help and our deliverer. Now it can't mean, there's no way God is our helper in such a way that he is under us. And yet it's used in Genesis to mean that. So actually, then maybe we look at the word again and think that's not what it's meant. It's a helper. It's an equal basis. What's interesting is that actually the roles only change in the Bible after the fall. Now, we could get into a long thing there. Before the fall, men and women are definitely equal. It's after the fall that we start to get compartmentalized. But we get all kinds of things after the fall. We get murder, we get lying, we get stealing, we get envy, we get all that kind of stuff comes after the fall, but doesn't come before the fall. But one of the interesting things is when we hear Genesis is how countercultural the Genesis stories are. When I teach on Genesis, on the courses that I do, one of the things I bring up is that we view it from a very much, oh, that's the story. But if you compare the Genesis story with other creation stories around, it says a completely different thing about our God than they're saying about their gods. It talks about God creating humans in his image. There's a relationship. There's something about him giving of himself. In some of the Near Eastern creation stories that are comparable, that would have been around perhaps at the same time, rulers were very much put in place by God. There would be one ruler put in place by God to subdue everything else. It wasn't humankind put in to subdue the world. It was one ruler given authority to oppress Now, what's interesting is later on, for those of you who know your Old Testament, later on, the Jews come to God and say, we want a ruler. We want a king. And God says, are you sure? They're like, yes, we do. And like, well, you're asking for it. I'll give it you. But but it wasn't the original order was to put in this one person. I mean, you see that in, in Egypt where the pharaohs were considered to be the gods who then subjected everybody else to their rule. And you had good ones and bad ones. But you had this world that was created out of relationship with God. Babylonian creation myths, again around at the time, often the the world was created out of chaos and violence. Any of you know some of your Roman and Greek myths? I mean, gods splitting heads and earths and things coming out and people being killed. And it was all violence and aggression, often an element of domestic violence involved between the gods in the Romans, Romans and the Greek, and you, again you get that back in Babylonia. What's unique about the Christian creation story, or the Abrahamic creation story, is this sense of chaos being brought into order in creation, of God bringing it out of love, out of relationship, and humankind being given an equal basis over the, the world, but not over one another all are made in God's image. Nobody has more value than another. Genesis creation story establishes equality. Equality in men and women, but equality amongst the races as well. And we take it for granted so much that we don't see it. But that's where our faith starts. That's what God places right at the beginning. So if we go from Genesis and then we jump to Jesus and say, well, what was Jesus's approach? How did Jesus approach women? How did Jesus react and engage with women? It was hugely countercultural. Again, we take so much for granted because we're not aware of the deep set um, patriarchy of the time. Women were not allowed to study Torah. They weren't allowed to study the scriptures. Um, First century rabbi was quoted as saying, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Women weren't seen as being reliable enough. They might change it. They might alter it. They might forget it or confuse it. Although these were the very women who at home were bringing up the children and teaching them Torah until they were old enough to go to rabbi there was a deeply set thing that the religious life was the man's, the home life was the woman. Women didn't have to recite the Shema, nor prayers at meals. In fact, in one place it was said, you know, um, better that a man die than have his his wife, wife and children recite the grace at meals. You know, it was just like, don't give up your responsibility to your lessers. There was this deep sense of the religious life was for the men, the women could get on at home, which is why when you get to Mary and Martha, I mean, I was at something the other day again, and, and the, the, the person preaching who I love very much was talking again about it being about Martha being worldly and working and Mary sitting at the feet. And, and there is an element that it's good to sit at Jesus' feet, but what we're missing this is this was radical stuff. This is just out of the box. Mary, because if you were sitting at somebody's feet, it meant you were, particularly a rabbi's feet, it meant that you were being taught. You were listening and you were learning. Well, women weren't allowed to do that. And here was Mary, sat there. So actually, in the context, Martha is right to be cross because Mary is going against everything that society says. And the Jewish religion would have said. But here instead, you have Jesus saying, no, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. There's a number of examples of Jesus um, connecting with women. For a Jewish rabbi, cleanliness and holiness was so important. And just touching a woman would be about bringing him down and making him unclean and unholy. With Jesus, we see the opposite. We see time and again that he raises up, and it's the same with lepers, and it's the same with other other people in in various states of illness, is that instead of his holiness being decreased, he brings light and life to those who haven't got it. The Samaritan woman in John is another example. Not only was she a Samaritan that the Jews hated, she was also a woman, and therefore she was unclean. She was not just that, she was a woman of ill repute. She was... uh, unclean, dirty, disgusting, horrible, all those kind of things you might want to put. And yet Jesus talks to her. He asks her for food. He receives something from her, asks her for water. And then what do we get? Well, we actually get the first evangelist. She's the first one. The first evangelist in the Bible is a woman. And it's her. And she runs and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And a number of her village come to faith in Jesus through her. Jesus, again, steps through everything that's expected of a holy man. If Jesus is treating women with respect and compassion, if he's raising them up from where their society is putting them, then actually, we have to say we have a, a God who is not only making man and woman equal, but when he's not seeing them as equal, he's raising them up. A God of justice, a God of love, and a God of compassion. So we see a Jesus who treats women in a radically countercultural way. There's lots of other accounts, and there's Lots of other things that I could bring out about there would be, there were disciples who were women. There were women who supported, Chris has a wonderful phrase, but there were Jesus being a kept man. There were women who supported Jesus's ministry. The women, there's a little meme going around on my Facebook at the moment that says, um, we're going to, this Easter will be truly scriptural. Um, Only women will announce the signs of the resurrection. Because it was all women who noticed that Jesus was alive. It was the women who went back and the men didn't believe them. You know, women have their place right at the center of the gospels as equals, as important, as valued, as loved, and as cherished by Christ. So we then get to what I've called those passages. (laughs) Because there are, in that whole book of the Bible, only a few passages that speak about, against women in leadership, in the massive, you know. And yet, because we're human and because that's what we like, we do get hung up on some of these passages. And we want to seek after God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We want to be following his will and we want to be understanding what he's saying through Paul. So Corinthians, again, there are books written on each one of these. So I'm not going to go into massive details, but I'm gonna give you some of what I've brought out and some of the perspectives I've got on them. So 1 Corinthians, women should remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If They want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now there's a number of things about these. The first is all these come from letters and we only have one side of the story. We know that Paul is writing into contexts. One of the things I find quite exciting is that these letters remind me that Paul was a real person. I mean, I know that I know he's a real person, but sometimes there's that sense of like, getting to real grips of this was somebody who sat down and wrote these letters he received news and he wrote back to them so for example imagine that we had a problem at all hallows with i don't know somebody who try to think of an example i know example somebody who would come in and sit down on that seat and then get up and walk through the service and then sit on that seat and then move to that seat and that seat and that seat and so throughout the service would sit in about 10 different seats and that this was happening week after week. And so we decided that we weren't sure what to do about this. So we wrote a letter to the bishop. We say, dear Bishop Adrian, I'm trying to think of a name. I can't think of a name because you know when you start thinking of names, all you think of is names of people who are here. Joanna. There we are. Joanna is really disturbing the congregation. Because she comes in and every, t- every week she moves seats during worship, we're singing, she's moving in and out during the prayers, she's moving in and out, she doesn't stay in one place, what do we do? And so the bishop writes back in bishop language and he goes, oh my, I hear your problem. And it's very disturbing when people are worshipping and others start moving around the community. I think it's really important that you stress to the congregation that they should take one seat at the beginning of the service and remain in that for the whole of the service. And we write back and say, well, that's really lovely, but we've tried doing that and it's not working. And he writes back and says, well, I think in that case, because of the good of the congregation, you need to say to this person that unless they are willing to stay in one seat only, that they can no longer come into the church building." All the other letters get lost and you end up with a letter that says, dear all hallows, because of the disruption to church services, very important that you emphasize to woman that she come in and she sit down in one seat and remain there for the whole service and not leave it. Signed bishop. Hundreds of years time. That's all they've got. So suddenly the Bishop of Stepney in 2000-whatever said that women, when they come in, should sit in one seat, not move throughout the whole service and remain there. Can you see how from what was a dialogue becomes a pronouncement that's separate? Now, the essence of what the bishop says is important, that one person shouldn't be allowed to disrupt everybody in listening to and hearing and meditating on the Word of God. And that is right. But if we, in 300 years' time, decide that we then have to make all women pick a seat, and that's the only seat they're ever allowed to sit in for the whole of the service, and they're not even allowed to go and get coffee or anything, then actually we're making something too literally rather than taking the essence. We don't know what the letters were that were written. All we can do is try and work out some from what we know from archaeology, from understanding the early church, from understanding the context in Corinth and Ephesus. So Corinthians, you've got these new church communities. In Jewish communities, the men prayed and what did the women do? Well, the women didn't pray because they weren't really allowed to pray. And they didn't listen because they weren't really allowed to listen. So often they were in a separate place chatting. Or I think, which is what sometimes happened in our communities around here, with our Bengali communities, the women were often at home getting everything ready for the men when they got back from worship. And suddenly you have these new communities where men and women are there together. And the women don't always understand what's happening. And so Paul is possibly saying that if they want to inquire about something, they shouldn't shout over, Oi, husband, what does that mean in the middle of the service? But they should wait till they get home. He's also talking about a women in a community who were only just being taught. So up till now, they'd had the very essence of Torah because they'd had to teach something to the small children, but they'd never sat in services where they would be taught and would be educated that way. So he's saying, wait and understand before you talk and ask. The word that's used for silence in the Greek is leilio, which actually means to chatter and prattle. Sorry, it's the word chatter. So the word to speak, not for silence. The word to speak is this word, to chatter and prattle. So it's not saying you're not allowed to say a word. It's much more context. You're not allowed to chat. You're not allowed to gossip, chat, talk. It's a much more of a plural word than not allowed to say a word, which again, sense to, to kind of give this basis that this may be what's happening. But it also conflicts with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11, he expects women to pray and prophesy. So you've got one minute he's saying men and women prophesy, and another minute he's saying women don't speak. Well, unless he had a form of prophesying without speaking that we don't have, the, the two feel as though they contradict. Timothy. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Well, again, I could write a book on this. So let's just look at a few little things. Again we don't have the original. We don't know the exact context into which the letter was written. But we do have a sense of knowing that the left from the rest of the letter that Paul is again drawing people back to the apost- apostolic teaching. There was danger of heresy. Again, we've got this scenario that women are only women are only recently in a situation where they are allowed to be taught. And so there's something about him saying, listen and learn. I mean, he says this elsewhere. The idea is that while we are still young, we listen and we learn off those who know more. We don't profess to know what we don't know. And it's important that we, we operate under submission, that we under operate under not submission in terms of male headship, but in those who are older and more mature and more educated in the faith. You've got a number of things that were happening in the early church. You've got this scenario of where you have women and men split for worship in the Jewish faith. In the Greek and Roman faith, you also have a sense of worship was really the male domain unless it was one of the fertility cults, unless it was almost these sort of Artemis, these gods where there was temple prostitutes, so you haven't got a place where women worshipped or led worship or were involved actively in worship in more of a, a discreet and modest way. And so some of what some people feel is being Paul is being trying to speak against was accusations that the Christians were going along the lines of these fertility cults. Hence this don't, you know, think about what you're wearing um, just because you now have a bit of freedom, don't get carried away. Because it's all for Paul, it's all about bringing people to Jesus. And if the behaviour of the church or the individuals in the church is cutting people off from Jesus, then we need to look at how that happens. So, I mean, the concerns of the passage generally are about men not arguing or disputing. It's interesting how much energy we spent on the women bit. And yet, um, yeah, all men need to lift up their holy hands in prayer. And how often do we emphasize on that? Paul is also talking to a more organized and settled church. It's how it's structured and how it works. Um, There's another sense from the original Greek that the passage bits, it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. It's singular and again may emphasize one woman rather than uh, a specific woman. If you look at 2 Timothy 2, again, he talks about what godly people have to teach others and doesn't distinguish from men and women. Again, when you look at some of these verses and then you consider elsewhere, we're getting more of men and women and then suddenly we have a verse out of context. And the Artemis cult, which is one of these women, sort of Amazonian type women cults where it was all about strength of women and again it wasn't about equality it was about women dominating men and there was a lot of prostitution and sex and all that kind of involved again in that which of course Paul is eager to point out that Christianity isn't. You've got no gold jewellery, you've got men must list up their hands. I can give you some really good books on 1 Timothy that talk in depth about the aspect. The other thing that's interesting is the other credentials that Timothy insists on uh, for a man. He insists that men should be married to just one wife, have no their children, be submissive, and manage his household well. When you look at what Timothy says about male about leaders, you end up that it disqualifies women, single men, men who are married but childless men who only have one child, men whose children do not believe, men whose children are too young to make a profession of faith, men whose children are insufficiently respectful. So it would discount most leaders. And again, we see the others to be aspired to, or maybe to talk about running a godly life to set a good example, not to put barriers in the way than others. Gloss over again, Ephesians. But this is the other one I want to put emphasize. When we look in the Bible, there are other examples of women. So you have to remember this is an environment which is hugely patriarchal. The Jewish faith is male-centered, the Roman Greek faith is male-centered, the Roman community is male-centered. Although women could have property under Roman rule, um, it it was so male-centered to the degree that when women went through menopause, they were then decreed to be like men and they suddenly have different rights because they were okay then. So there was some very odd stuff in both Roman Greek and Jewish. And yet, in Romans 16:3 Paul greets Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Traditionally, like in traditional English where you put the man first and then the woman it would be man and woman the only reason for putting the woman first and the man apart from if Paul was particularly cranky against Aquila I guess would be if Priscilla was in some way superior over Aquila so male came first unless it was about superiority of some kind You have Aquila and Priscilla mentioned a number of times. In Corinthians, we have greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. They were early church leaders. Priscilla and Aquila in the household. You've got again in Timothy. Priscilla's name first. They're both co-workers. You've got Priscilla. There's a later tradition that she led a Christian community. You've got Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church. She's carrying a letter In Romans, she's carrying the letter to Romans. She was entrusted to carry the letter. Um, Paul says to give her help, implying she's been sent to help the church do something, which also then implies she has some sort of influence and particular position. There's a wonderful book that's just been written, for those of you interested, by Paula Gooder, called Phoebe, where it's one of these, um, it's fiction, but based on historical things. And it's about a fictional account of who Phoebe might have been. Um, Paula Good is a, an eminent New Testament theologian. So it's on my list of books to read. You've got a number of um, Philippians and um, no Philemon again. And you've got Chloe, Lydia and others. And Timothy himself got his faith from his mother and his grandmother. He was taught and brought to faith by them and grown by them. So what now? I think there is plenty of evidence in the Bible, across the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but it's how Jesus relates from Genesis. And I think, I mean, those of you who heard Chris when I was ill, this sense of throughout the Old Testament where God is continually beyond where culture is. He's not conforming to culture. He's continually setting the bar above about justice and equality, about widows and orphans being given rights that mean they have survival and they have life. We have a God of justice and a God who loves us and a God who created us. But above all, we have a God who gives us life. And that's why I want to finish where we started with Romans 12. We are all gifted in the body of Christ. We are gifted because we're part of the body. It's just like if we have a body and we have a broken foot. If any of us are denied our gifting and denied the opportunity of stepping into all that God has for us, the whole body suffers. For centuries, for centuries, the body suffered because those who weren't white were not allowed their place because they were decreed not to be the same or worthy. We all suffered. For centuries, communities have suffered because women have been oppressed, not given the freedom to step into gifting of mothering if that's where they're called, but being forced into a box and not allowed out. And, Communities have suffered because men have been forced into boxes that define them and not allow them to encompass their giftings. It works both ways. And so one of the things I want to do tonight is to really have this sense of us receiving a call into all that God has called for us and all that God has made us to be. He's created his image as alive and gifted and talented and with everything that he's got for us. And our body, not just us at All Hallows, but the wider body of Christ across the world is only fully healthy if we are all free to move into that. So I'd love us to stand. And I just want to pray. I want to pray first for those who felt that others actions, opinions, or words have blocked them from moving into who they feel they're called to be. So if that's you, just put your hands out. And I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, you call us to be free, to be the people that you call us to be. And I want to pray now for any of my brothers and sisters here who felt that others have stopped them from moving into all that you're gifting them to be, whether it's through words or actions. And I wanna pray your healing to be upon them. I wanna pray that you will speak your words of love and affirmation, that they are free to be who you are calling them to be, not confined to a box of others' expectations and limitations but to the all-encompassing imagination of a creative, loving, caring God. Come, Holy Spirit.